Hello and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. Today, our guest is Meg Tonkin. Meg has just completed her PhD in robotics at the University of Technology in Sydney. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Hi, thanks, Nikki. Thanks for having me on. Oh, really wonderful. To be here. <laughs> I've, I've been so looking forward to chatting to you. So, um, I, I, just for our audience, we both uh, we both suffering from a bit of hay fever today. So if you hear a bit of uh, chuckling in the background, that's us uh, in Melbourne and in Sydney. The pollen count is extremely high today. So um, I hope you're all faring better than we are. Meg, tell us about your your journey um, into the PhD. Sure. Okay. Well, um, I guess for myself, um, I've always been interested in technology. And um, I actually had a bit of a varied background to get to this PhD. I never thought I would do a PhD to start off with. Um, yeah. I actually uh, did a uh, Bachelor of Science in Agriculture yeah. for my undergraduate degree many years ago. And then um, I couldn't uh, stay away from technology as it was because <laughs> I've always grown up with technology. And I... Uh, did a master's in interactive multimedia and I was very much focused on user experience and mobile technology. And so a lot of my background is in mobile and web. And I worked for many years uh, in corporates and um, different companies in mobile and web technology. And then after having kids, I looked at uh, what was going on in the in the industry and how things had changed especially with all the smartphones and everything that people were using and I thought what is it that I can do that's going to uh, kind of set me up for the future what is it and I love learning so I was kind of like I'm always interested in new things so I thought okay what can I do that that's really going to set me up for the future and uh, also one of the things my um, one of my children said was because um, I've been at home looking after them as well and kind of doing things part-time. And they're like, I just want to be like you, mum, and stay at home all the time and look after the kids. And I thought, oh, no, no, no I do more than that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's, there's so much more you can do. And, and um, I mean, it's great. It's fun. But at the same time, I was like, there's so many more things you can do as well. And I thought, okay, I've got to show them um, as well, you know, there's so much out there, there's so many things, and it's so exciting to learn new things as well. So when I was investigating, I was, I've always had an interest in robotics and I kind of felt like it reached that stage now where so many things were kind of starting to take off. You know, we've, there's so much with the machine learning that's going on and well, the artificial intelligence that's happening that now we can actually start doing things uh, for real in a sense with um, different types of robots. And so, I looked into robotics and I, and I looked into AI and I thought, oh, wow, there's so many different areas to focus on. And uh, the area I decided to focus on was social robotics. And, and the reason I did this is because when I looked into social robots, I realised that they kind of cover all different areas. You know, they use computer vision. They use, uh, they have to have physical manipulation of objects in the real world. They have to be able to navigate around. So they kind of combine and bring together all these different areas of learning into the one kind of um, product, into the one robot. And, and then of course, there's the human interaction side as well, which is um, 
really interesting for myself with my user experience background. So it's, it's very interesting. So I kind of ended up going, right, social robotics, that's, that's kind of the next wave. That's, and it's not, uh, it's not here around us every day at the moment. So it's definitely an area that I can kind of get in at the beginning and move on with as it, it becomes more commonplace. I love your, your remark about your kids saying, oh, they want to be like you, stay at home and just do a little couple of things. It means you've done it exceptionally well to be juggling all these balls. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> no, I wouldn't yeah. imagine, you know, and I think for a lot of, uh, I think for a lot of women out there it, uh, that have, you know, sort of taken up um, studying further in their career it's a it's a real juggle and um, not to be underestimated like the amounts of commitment and discipline you have to put towards what you're trying to achieve yeah yeah I, I think uh, you could kind of read these stories about these women doing these amazing things with young children and I always think how do they do it <laughs> you know um, my kids um, primary school age and just got into high school and uh, it's it's really the um, the community around me that provides that support and friends and just so many people that allow different things to occur where it's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to be here for this, but I can do that. And it's like, okay, you know, I can, someone can come for a play date. Oh, I need a bit of extra time to do this. Okay, let's do that. Um, I do have one memory of being on a holiday and uh, suddenly um, a paper came back that I had to work on and it was just like, okay, um, you guys enjoy the beach. <laughs> we were there with other friends and it's like, I'll come and save a cheese and Vicky for me. I'll be joining you in a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. So working on a holiday and it, it's kind of, you know, that's it, kind of a sacrifice in a way, but one that I was willing to do at the time because, you know, it's going to lead to better things. So I, I suppose it touches on the question, you know, um, can women have it all? I had to do a talk on this one day and I, I found it really an exceptional video clip of the CEO of uh, Pepsi Cola. I think she still is an amazing woman, yeah. super smart. And she said, you know, it's the community around you, just as you've just said, like you, you have to actually cultivate a network, a very strong support system of people helping you. And she actually trained the, um, the receptionists when her kids phoned in and she wasn't available and you'd hear this, um, she'd say, um, hello, can I speak to my mommy? Then they would know that they want to speak to the boss and they want to speak to the boss. Mommy is the boss. And um, the receptionist had like a check sheet of, and she'd say, no, look, mommy's busy at the moment, but can I help you? And she'd say, well, she wants to know if she can play uh, video games and then there was prompt questions okay have you done your homework yes okay then you're allowed to do this no then there's another little box like there was a whole dialogue and that's that's literally how she managed it you know like uh, you just simply can't do it on your own and um, I think it's, it's a fallacy out there that you know you can do it all I think you make decisions of what you choose that that's important to you and um, everything comes at a price you know so you have to decide what price are you willing to pay for what you want to do yes yes exactly and that's that's a lovely example I relate to that so much yeah. <laughs> can I play video games have you done your homework <laughs> yes I love that I just thought and she's got like a whole four minute video thing on this offer it's just wonderful so you know and people supporting you so it's wonderful that you've got this community out there doing it for you so you've just handed in your dissertation so how long did it take you all up to do it uh, yes, so technically I'm not finished yet. So okay. I'm on the examination. Um, yeah. 
presentation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still a PhD student. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I started in 2016. Yeah. So we we're coming up to four and a half years, basically. And it's, I took a little bit of leave during yeah. that time, just a certain time, especially uh, when COVID arrived. It was, yeah. okay, I, <laughs> I can't manage the schooling and my schooling. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, I kind of, I didn't, I wanted to try and complete. There's always this expectation to complete within three years. and But at the same time, I kind of, I'm not in the same situation as a younger student without children so I kind of thought I can't put that pressure on myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of, if you think you're stretched in like all different directions, it's like you don't want to stretch too far in one direction. So yeah. Look, yeah. I think, yeah, as you say, you have to, um, any pressure that you put on yourself is pressure that you're putting on yourself. Three years is great if you're just in your 20s, uh, you know, you you don't have a household to run, you don't have kids, you, you maybe not married with that sort of extra relationship to maintain and fine, three years is fine for a PhD, but as soon as you add any other complexity to it, it, it does add time. Yes, yeah, so, and uh it's kind of been an interesting time to be doing a PhD as well. Cause I, I know when I started, it's kind of, um, they were just kind of doing things with um, machine learning, reinforcement learning. And then it's, it's just kind of really um, changed so much. The kind of things that we first started that were quite hard to do with a robot. And now it's like, oh, well, it's just expected that the robot can do that, you know, within that four-year time period. So I find that really interesting as well and kind of really exciting because then it tells me what are the next four years going to bring about the changes as well. Yeah, I think you're right because, I mean, if you look at the massive explosion of um, especially social robots in the market, if CES is a good example of this, uh, when I was in 2018, like, you, they were just like the amount of social robots, you just couldn't believe it. It was mind boggling. And it's because of the price of the sensors coming down that this is, becomes affordable technology now. So, you know, imagine 20 years ago, if it was this affordable, where would we be today? But in, you know, just your your um, reference to it, that yes, in four years time, you know, instrumentally, how quickly are we progressing? Mm, yes, yeah. So, so in terms of challenges, like what, what were major challenges for you in your PhD? Uh, so I think the first one was kind of overcoming this kind of imposter syndrome in a sense where my background wasn't robotics, very technical in some areas, but because of not having that background in robotics, it's kind of like, oh, I don't really know about this. And then kind of realizing, but actually I'm quite strong in these areas, which carry across to robotics. So they just haven't been, um, gone to in depth within robotics yet so that kind of that user experience between people and a social robot it's like I can bring that knowledge across to this area and I'm learning the technology at the same time as I do it so uh, the first kind of challenge was kind of understanding that okay I'm, I'm not I'm not going to hit the ground running I'm going to learn a lot <laughs> and that was quite exciting um, I'm going to learn a lot and also knowing that I'm not going to pick it up straight away each things so I um, started off learning ROS um, that's the robot operating yeah. system and I was very lucky at the beginning that I um, our lab where I was at university had a partnership with Commonwealth Bank and the innovation lab there where they had a, a social robot that was able to be used 
uh, by different students within our lab. And so I was very lucky being able to experience working with a social robot in an area where many different people were coming through every day and interacting with that robot in a very natural way. And so just being there and doing my work and going, oh, wow, that's so interesting. People come in and say this every time almost. Yeah. I wonder why that is. And then thinking about that and then that led on then to thinking about different design studies we could do to try and investigate why that was the case. And it was really interesting um, just having that opportunity. But uh, I guess the challenge is definitely putting together a, a study, a design study, an experiment with a social robot. It can't be done by one person. It, it's, it's just too great a... a um, task for one person to be able to you know do all the coding do all the interactions um do all the programming organizing all the work so it really requires a team and i was so lucky that i had such a great team of people that kind of came around with the lab um and we all kind of came together as students and supervisors to be able to make those experiments and studies work so that kind of challenge also was for me going oh i expected to kind of be doing this by myself and then that first year was realizing can't be done by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you really need a team of people to make it work. Yeah, so. it's it's interesting your uh, imposter syndrome uh, comment there because I know, you know, I, I speak to a lot of women and you know myself included. I also um, have had a moment or two of this, and I, I've actually begun to wonder whether this is particular to women. Um, you know, I, I've never heard a guy say to me, "Oh, he has imposter syndrome." Maybe they are out there. Please, men listening, please do let us know. But I've never heard a man say. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I should be here. Um, and yeah, I just, I, it, it's actually something that's quite, um, I feel quite strongly about because I think it holds us back. You know, no one is actually expected to, to hit the ground running with everything that you do. We, there's just simply too much information. The, the PhD, you know, in its own right is so complex, you know, that for someone of your maturity, even going, you know, I felt I shouldn't be here with all your knowledge that you had. Um, well, don't even put me in your situation because I just won't even rock up there because I'll just, you know, this is just not. It's, I think it's important to, you know, maybe reiterate to other people going through this that, the expectation isn't of you to know everything. You know, you, there, there are things you won't know and don't worry about it. You know, obviously you're bright enough and um, studious enough to go, I don't know this, I need to read up on it to just to get a working knowledge of it. But we can't be all be experts across everything. Yes, yes, that's so true. And, it, and it's so important to realise that. And also, especially in robotics, things fail a lot. <laughs> you know, the robot falls over. <laughs> you know, you're waiting for it to, to perform a certain task and it does something completely different or doesn't do it at all. And you're left there wondering, why did that happen? What, what did I miss? What, what, what didn't go right? And there's many, many different things that could go wrong and working yeah. that out. And, yeah, I think uh, that's really important. And, yeah, I think, I think what you've mentioned is right. I don't... I look at the confidence of the people I've met in in the field and I think some of those guys are really confident about what they're doing and then the girls are doing exactly the same just as well but they won't be as confident about it and so I, I don't know what it is you know like I'm yeah. beginning to think we should get past this this um 
this notion that we need to be patted on our backs about what a great job we must do. You know, we must just tell ourselves we're doing a great job. I'm, I'm serious about it. I, I'd look at it and I go, and it's it's not really in people's nature to tell you you're doing a great job because they're busy doing their own jobs. You know, like people are focused, like essentially we focused on what we're doing. And whilst we may think other people are doing a fantastic job, we don't always stop to think, oh, I need to tell someone they're doing a great job. I think that should just become our responsibility. You wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, I'm doing a fantastic job under whatever circumstances you've got in life and I'm doing the best I can and I suppose that's a bit of a measure of you go um, like am I doing the best I can am I am I living up to my potential and, and if the answers are yes you go I'm doing a fantastic job yes yes exactly I think I think that's great and I, I love that idea of waking up in the morning and and, and just going okay this is this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm going to do it. And I think some of the things that help me as well is um, so sometimes, you know, as a, as a PhD student, you submit papers, they get rejected, you know, you do different things, you try different things, they don't work. And it's just, just remembering the things that you have done. It's like always reminding yourself, okay, so this didn't work, but you know, these are the things I've done in the past that have worked. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not a complete failure just because this didn't work. <laughs> yeah, that, you know what, it's really, I, I can't agree with you more, you know, and I think people, um, especially high pressure PhD roles, like the, the students are obviously under pressure. There's no doubt about it. And there's an expectation of your yourself, your mentors, um, your peers, that there should be a certain level of stuff done. But again, as you say, this doesn't make me a failure because this hasn't been done right. It's just another way not to do it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that's so true. So a bit of a personal question in terms of your age and younger students, like how, how did this all play out in the lab? Uh, well, it's quite interesting. Uh, what I noticed at first is that I'm not as quick as I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't process things as quickly. Um, but then the flip side of that is that even though I might not process something or learn something as quick, I might take a little bit longer to learn it, but then I seem to have, um, I have a greater understanding of the implications. It's kind of like a, a deeper understanding then that, that, well, okay, what are the implications of this? Is, is I find that easier to understand. So the processing, not as quite as fast, but once I've got it, then yes, I have a, a kind of a broader and deeper understanding then. So that's the one thing I noticed. Uh, I found it really fun working with younger people. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like all different ages. I mean, um, one of the advantages at, at university was that um, in our lab we had undergraduate students, we had postgraduate, um, postdoc research fellows as well. So we had a whole different range of students of different ages. And it was great because we all got to work together with different skills, doing different tasks, and it really worked well. And one of the things I found as well is that... Um, Sometimes people would get excited about something or they're like, oh, this is great. And someone would say, um, but what about this? Like, how does that, what's the consequence of doing something like this? And so it's kind of, we all had a different viewpoint to bring in about different types of technology and how it could be used and, and why we would do something or not do something a certain way. Well, that's why it's essential to have diversity, not only diversity and ethnicity, but, you know, age-wise as well. You know, there's a real ageism thing going in Australia that if you're over the age of 
Yeah, I say at 50, you might as well just go and sit and be put out to pasture. And I think it's, you know, companies, they're so short-sighted that this is where the deep learning is of mature people that can actually be mentors to younger people in the organization. Sure, you're not earmarking them to be the CEO, but they're there for different reasons. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's that diversity is so important. I, I think one of the things I first noticed when I started my degree was there's a lot of um, there's a lot of young guys in robotics, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of all kind of look at things a certain way, and um, and sometimes you're just coming along and going, oh, well, why don't why don't we do it this way, or why don't we approach it approach it from this angle? It's kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know, it just hadn't occurred to people and then we might try it and it might it might work or but or it leaves a kind of it gives us a different perspective with which to view things and then it, it works better so definitely yeah, absolutely. so so what would your ratio if I may ask like in your in your lab like male to female oh that's a hard one because we have students come and go every yeah. year so I don't think I could actually work it out I do know um, so we undertook a competition. My lab was involved in a competition, which I got to experience um, for one year, which is fantastic, yeah. and kind of involved in behind the scenes in the later years. Um, and that began with um, myself. I'm just trying to think if there were any other girls on the team to begin with. And by the, I think by the third and final year that we were doing that competition, it was, you know, it was maybe five girls. It like they just kept on building up. Yeah, I've been very lucky um, with my supervisor, who's uh, Professor Marianne Williams. She's very vocal about women and technology, and she's fantastic. And so she's really interested in um, making sure those opportunities for women are there yeah. in technology. And and so I, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, change definitely changed. More women coming in. Um, yeah. That's not to say women weren't already there, uh, but yeah, there's always been a, there's always been slightly more boys than girls. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's good. Look, it's just an end, you know, like we know STEM numbers, like 36% of um, graduates in STEM are women today. And it's certainly something that a lot of people are putting a lot of effort to get more in. And, and just for the sheer, you know, diversity is important. Like just never mind diversity, it's a better career path for women. You earn more money, you know, like they, they're just obvious things from the get-go why you want more money in this in this field. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I think it's really interesting as well because I notice it seems to be at a very young age that uh, kind of there's a decision made somehow. So I, I, I find it interesting. I think that's a whole other conversation though. <laughs> Yes. Oh, no, look, this, this is the, the crucial age. Where do you get the goals that they go? Um, it's been suggested, you know, the goals, it's a fact. Goals are equally strong in maths and sciences, but we're equally strong in humanity. So it becomes a shift. Where does your cohort, where are your peers, your friends going? And there's a bit of a shift towards, like, that's an influence. So I was reading a paper, and Mike, I could agree with this, is that teachers play, like, such a crucial role at this juncture where they say to girls listen of course humanities are great but if you've got a stem stem background you can easily pivot into humanities if that's still a passion of yours but if you choose a path that you're excluding the stem then it's excluded so you know keep your op options open yes yes definitely and i know for myself with my kids uh, one of the things i noticed uh, for i have um, my youngest is a girl and 
during school holidays, I would, I had an opportunity to book her into coding camps, which was one of the things that my university offered a discount to for its um, students for school holidays. They could get a discount at the Powerhouse Museum for their coding camps, which I just loved. I mean, that is that is a great initiative. <laughs> doing yeah. Like that for people who are carers and trying to study yeah. as well. It's like you need for your kids to do to do things during the school holidays. And um, and she mentioned in one of her coding classes, it was only her and one other girl, all the rest were boys. And uh, she was quite young at the time. I think she was six, I think. And I, I find it interesting because I, I try to find out what other parents at school were doing with their kids. And the girls tended to go into different camps. There's a, there's a big price difference. So the other camps, the uh, school holiday camps were a lot cheaper than the coding camps. And the boys would be put into coding camps. So it's kind of at a very young age that that kind of segregation was occurring. And for myself, if I hadn't had that discount to the coding camps, as it were, she probably would have been there with her other friends at school doing um, dance or other holiday activities, things like that. But it was because of that discounted, um, that pricing that just put it there for her to be involved in. And what's happened now is that's carried through in her later years at school is that now they're kind of in fifth and sixth grade, she's not there yet, but they do robotics. And you find that the boys, they've already had all this kind of experience doing coding camps, whereas for some of the girls, it's kind of their first experience with doing that. So they already feel like the boys are ahead and they're doing it. Yeah. So it kind of, it's set her up now. So when she does that, she's done um, something with robotics. She feels she's on top of it as well and just as good as the boys because she's had that earlier experience. So, yeah, so it's interesting what age <laughs> do you start and bring that in. So. Yeah, that's actually very interesting feedback. You should let them know that that they should actually just discount it to the girls just to get the numbers up because if, if that was actually something that you lectured and went, well, if I didn't have the discount, I wouldn't have done it. And you in the field, um, you know, like what does that say? You know, it, it becomes like, it's an issue um yes. you know they should do it for trial for two years boys pay this and girls pay this and that's just because we need to attract more girls into it or for whatever however they set it up girls get a couple of scholarships or you know I'm, I'm all for women working hard and on their own merits getting stuff but um if that's already like a you know go that's already a deficit there in my opinion yeah. so yeah. and that's yeah. not a choice of the child themselves that's no parents have to make yeah, and understanding as well, kind of, you know, if it's if it's something that they want to do with their friends and it's the right price, then that that works well. Yeah, so, and then that just kind of sets them up for those future years as well. Yeah, yeah. So you were involved in RoboCup. Tell us about this. Yeah, so that's a really exciting competition. That's um, a worldwide uh, international competition, and uh, I was involved specifically in the social robotics side. So uh, that's with the Pepper robot. Yeah. And that was uh, amazing because the Pepper robot, so um, I don't know if it, people are aware what the Pepper robot is. It, it's, a, it's a smaller robot. I think it's about 1.2 metres high. It has arms and fingers. It has a tablet on its front and it's quite cute looking. Mm -hmm. It was designed to be cute looking. <laughs> you, yeah. know? So you, were, you know, if you're going to have things in your environment, you may as well have them looking nice. Yeah. <laughs> so... And uh, it's a social robot. It's specifically made to interact with people. And we were involved in one of the first, I think it was the first year that um, they had this, what they call the at-home league for RoboCup. And 
that was in Japan at the time. And that was really exciting. We came uh, second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We came second and uh, we won the Human Robot Interaction Design Award. So that was quite exciting because one of the things that I could bring into robotics as well was because of my background in mobile and web, there's a tablet on the front of the robot. And it's, I found that it was really important to be consistent in what that tablet was showing and to match what was happening in the interaction with people so that what they were seeing on the screen was kind of what you would expect to see and would follow on and allow different paths to occur in that interaction as well. So it was really exciting just to be able to do different things with that screen and have the robot doing gesturing and talking to people at the same time. And uh, so that was one of the exciting things working with the Pepper robot. And uh, it's a great competition. It's, it just brings teams together. You have a number of tasks that you have to complete uh, in a time frame as well. And it's just, you know, it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. very good test. Yeah. Does it not work? So, yeah. Yeah. And so the uh, the lab went on. We kind of had different people come in over different years. Um, and then in 2019, the, the lab won the international social robotics part of the RoboCup competition. Well done. Yeah, named first in the world. So there were um, some amazing um people in the team that allowed that to happen and yeah so I, don't I, I always maintain on my talks here Australians have got nothing to stand back for in the world like we up there with the rest of them in, in terms of innovation smarts and uh you know just sheer brain power what what we can achieve yes yeah I couldn't agree more and I just I just think there's so many uh possibilities and opportunities there for us as a, a nation we just have so many bright people here that can do so many things and it's just mm -hmm. kind of making sure that we provide those opportunities there for them to kind of also stay in Australia and and do things which is interesting now with COVID it's kind of <laughs> yeah changed quite a few people's plans uh so you mentioned that you were perhaps looking at going overseas uh perhaps yes that was one of the considerations I thought that would be a, an excellent opportunity to uh continue study overseas and take my children overseas and and give them a, a taste of a, a different living in a different country and doing things like that uh that's kind of changed now with covid uh, yeah. i kind of feel uh it's not the right time and yeah so we'll just see what happens over the next couple of years with where that uh pandemic takes our country and other countries as well but at the moment i feel like we're in a really good place in australia yeah and uh yeah i kind of I don't want to put them in a situation where uh, things are different. Yeah. So are you, um, once your, your um, dissertation is being accepted and you crowned your PhD and all that, do, are you going to do a postdoc or what, what's your next step? Uh, so at the moment, I'm actually interested in uh, working with some of the other students from the lab. Yeah. A couple of them postdocs um, and just we've got so many skills in AI, machine learning, robotics, and we're actually looking at um, doing some consultancy work. We, we have, uh, my focus has always kind of been on kind of applications in the real world. So AI in the real world, what are the, how can we use it in the real world? What are, what are some things that we can do that we can use the technology of today to make a difference today? So we're kind of, Come together and thought this is this is a good opportunity you know 
can take quite a while for a, a dissertation to be marked. So yeah, <laughs> of course. Time. <laughs> yes. So and uh, yeah, so we're kind of looking at robotics and AI in social environments, and uh, so we're going to be um, doing that. There's a there's so many different areas where a lot of the tools that we created and the kind of platforms that we've created during this three years of the the lab doing. Uh, the RoboCup competition, there's a lot of learnings there that we've all kind of taken on board. And some of those, it's kind of realizing that those could be used in different contexts as well. Yeah. So we've just got that opportunity. I suppose, again, and also relating what you do in an academic setting to actually make it usable in industry, that's always like the crossover because. Um, you know, I was talking to Professor Wendy Moyle and she was talking about Pepper, that it, it was designed in a lab. It was it was actually for lab use. It wasn't actually designed to be used out in the in the world with people and doing interactions. So, yes. you know, again, like robots that are designed, what are it what fit for purpose, etc. So um, but just the crossover of your learnings now, that that's very interesting. Yes, yeah. So I'm really interested in that kind of real world application. And yeah. with the Pepper robot, it's it's an interesting robot because it people react to it in such an emotional way mm. because it has those gestures, because it it uses um, the different technology to be able to look at your face when you talk, which is yeah. just one of those vital things in human in human interaction. And yeah. You know, it, it makes eye contact and it can point at things. And it, they sound like very simple things, but they make such a difference when you're interacting. So oh, no, definitely. Uh, yeah. um, Professor Croft at uh, Monash was doing a study on this, that when robots shake your hand, the, the strength, the grip, like, and it was fascinating. She came and did a whole presentation on it. I won't go into it too much, but it is essential because this is as humans. If you look at someone and you don't give eye contact in some cultures, well, I would consider it shifty, but you know, for some it's, a, it's got a different meaning, but generally speaking, eye contact is acceptable. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And just being able to um, change focus when different people are talking as well. Yeah. So, you know, if we're in a group, we generally look at the person who's talking at the time. So then the technology that supports that, you know, it's just yeah. being able to determine which direction the sound is coming from and then look at that. And so all these little things have to come together to make yeah. social robotics work. And that and that's one of the things I mentioned before I found so interesting about it. It's just you're required to bring together all these different kind of dimensions that just need to be considered, you know, the social side of it, the physical side of it. And then there's the digital side of it as well with the tablet and then all the things that the robot can do behind the scenes, you yeah. know. We're just at the start of what social robots can do. I, I just, one of the things I'm really interested in is that it provides us this kind of ability of um, being able to do so much more than as a human we can do by ourselves and how do we make them so that we're able to use them in a natural fashion. So it, it feels natural and I kind of prefer it in a way to, you know, having to type on a, on a keyboard or um, choose things from a screen. It's much more natural for humans to say, oh, yes, let's do that. Yeah. Rather than going, typing in yes or. Yeah, just, voice activating. Yeah. 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 So adapting ourselves to the technology as opposed to the technology adapting to us. Essential. So security and social robotics is very important, as in all technology that we're using. Like, tell us, what did you find there in your, in your journey? 
Oh, right. Okay. So um, actually in my, um, in my work, I kind of, I wasn't so much focused on the security side. So it was very much the assumption. And I think this is from having a, a business background. The assumption is that we make it secure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we yeah. Make sure that things are secure and yeah. you don't want people to get access to data. You don't want the robots to be able to be hacked, you know, and we put different um, measures in place to do that. But what I found more interesting and, and more of a concern was around privacy. So, and this is where my kind of uh, part of my journey went along, you know, coming into robotics in the beginning and going, oh, wow, this is amazing. You can do so much here with machine learning and just so much with AI. You know, I can have a robot that goes along, can be live streaming to people and then we can have, you know, crowdsourcing of what the action the robot takes next and all of this. But then, you know, you can't just look at something in isolation. You have to look at the broader picture and, and what are the implications? And then, you know, there's a lot of privacy implications around that. And, you know, how does it affect people in society? How does it affect people who are in that space at the time with the robot? And especially because I was focusing on public spaces and public settings, because um, a robot that you have in your home is, a, is kind of a different ball game. Yeah. But when you're in a public setting in a public space, whatever you bring into that public space affects the atmosphere. It affects the people in that space. It changes the dynamics. So it's great. We could do all these amazing things with technology, but we really have to consider how we're going to affect people who aren't going to interact with that robot directly, but are just going to be a, a bystander to that, but they're still going to be affected by that. So then my research kind of took more of a, how do we bring in privacy how do we make a great user experience with robots and how do we make sure that it respects people's privacy as well? And so my dissertation was actually on um, socially responsible design for social robots in public settings. And so what I concentrated on was what are the things we need to consider to respect people's privacy? Because it's an important pillar of um, human rights and dignity. Yeah. And we need to make yeah. sure that it, we respect people's privacy and not just the kind of the the way that we kind of just sign off on our data and click off on a website, yes, I accept the terms and conditions. Yeah. It has to be done differently when it's a robot in a public setting. You know, we can't just assume that people are going to understand what they're signing off to or agreeing to. So it's one of those things that the regulation hasn't really caught up with in some countries especially yet, and it's an area that I'm very passionate about because I think we, we have an opportunity kind of to steer our future the way we want. And, you know, a robot, as you said before, it has many different senses. It collects so much information. So we really need to concentrate on what should be the way that we do this to allow society to function, to have that necessary privacy that people um, require for having um, um, strong relationships and it's essential to people's well-being. It's it's one of those things that we really need to consider. So I wanted to, I approach it from a kind of an organisational viewpoint. How can I implement a social robot in a public space that means that you're meeting your corporate social responsibility, you're ensuring the well-being of people in that area, you're meeting um, privacy legislation, but also you're kind of going beyond that as well because of that biometric data, you know, what is it you're collecting? Why are you collecting it? And just making sure that all of those areas are considered so that that robot can be in that space without it creating a kind of a, a negative impact on people in that environment. 
It's a huge area of study. And I mean, just sitting and listening to you, I can in some ways see why our adoption rate of these robots is perhaps as low as it is because it's, there's so many implications that you have to consider. And, um, you know, I've, I've got my Temi um, is, is involved in a study as well. And one of the participants, you know, they were very concerned about the, the security and the privacy because they read an article about it, which is fair enough. But McPhee actually did a very robust um, like study on it for three months and pointed out the bugs and it's come back as a mature, reliable, safe piece of technology, which is absolutely fantastic. But, yes. you know, like all these robots are out there and there are literally hundreds on the market. You know, I don't know if every single one has been put through its, you know, rope, so to speak, and gone, you know, how robust are you in terms of your privacy and then the information you're gathering? Hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely an area that uh, is growing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would be. Definitely, it would have yeah. to. So, yeah, so, and I kind of, I wanted to make sure that we could, we could do it in a way that we're, we're that we're protecting people's privacy. Yeah. So we have that social robot in a public setting, so... Because there's so many advantages that come from using a social robot, and especially now with COVID as well, you know, yeah. that social robot can be there. It's not going to pick up COVID. It's not going to be put in a situation where um, it's, it can get sick. And <laughs> yeah. So. No, they're obvious uses of it. So you mentioned you've got a little girl. Have you, have you got a son as well or just? Yes, I've got two girls and a boy. Okay. And, and they, um, they're very lucky. They've, got to interact with robots and uh, <laughs> and what do, are they like just robots are fine I, that, that's you know generally kids are okay I, I find like the older we go up it's very interesting demographics how people respond to the older a little bit more but generally kids the small ones they're right in there they're onto the touchpad going da, 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 and I'm going no no don't do that <laughs> yes. oh, absolutely oh yeah they love it I mean and that's what I've actually found you know um one of the things I've been so lucky is just um putting robots in different public settings like shopping centres and airports and um, kind of being in so many different public kind of space environments, hospitals, and just children love robots. They just, you know, it's it's very unusual to see a child who was kind of not okay with the robot. Yeah. And, you know, and there's some, you know, you see them doing things that you're just like, oh, okay, I'll just stand very close to the robot because... Yeah. <laughs> Please don't rip off the robot's arm. She needs the arm. Put it back. Yes, yes. Please don't feed your food to the robot. <laughs> it's very sticky. <laughs> So, but how generous that's lovely yeah, of course. yeah yeah so you're passionate about creating an ecosystem for students leaving university and like what's much about this and you know how how far is it with what you're thinking so one of the things that i've been looking at is just where do people um what are the what are the paths for you know myself and for other students who are in robotics in australia at the moment and kind of where are the paths for them to go and and I guess that's one of the things, you know, you look around, we don't have social robots in our day to day. So how do we kind of start bringing, bringing in more areas where there are robotics and start um, providing a, a place <laughs> for students to go, well, I've got all these skills, you know, all these students who've um, taken part in RoboCup over the years, you know, they, they're great programmers, they have and not just programming skills, like a whole bunch of other um, skills that have 
been required during that competition. You know, at the moment, there's an opportunity there for Australia to really go, we can be a, a great part of the world ecosystem with social robots. So how do we build this in our country that we can do this? Because we have so many people in so many different areas and in Melbourne, um, in Queensland, in Sydney. So how do we kind of get to that point where people go, oh, okay, yep, I could go overseas, but also I can work here and do this. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, I guess it's just, <laughs> it's just, I think it's an interesting area because it's just kind of bringing it together and making it work. So, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that even if you do have a robot and bringing it in, where's the support for looking after that robot? Where's the, where's the support for um, updating that robot and, and changing it as it moves on? So hopefully uh, we're kind of taking a first step in that direction, uh, myself and some other students, and, you know, we can provide that kind of support for having a robot in the field and undertaking studies and organisations are able to go, okay, we'd really like to see if a social robot would work for us. Uh, how do we do that? Yeah. So provide that opportunity. Well, you, you'd know about the um, Robotics Australia Network website that's up and running under the, you know, um, Suki, Suki. Yes. And yeah, so, I mean, just to our listeners out there, that's a fantastic resource. It's got all the interviews of all the workshops of the uh, Robotics Roadmap 2020 as well. So, I mean, that would that's just an obvious that you'd sort of fall under that just so that people know about you, obviously, in Sydney as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so advice for people or women in particular wanting a career in robotics, what, what would you say to them? Just do it. <laughs> go for it <laughs> it's you pretty know? much my attitude yeah just go and do it yeah yeah so i i think that um there's there's so many areas that women can make a difference and you know don't leave it up to all the guys to do it <laughs> you yeah. know we should be there too you know we bring in especially um robots that are going to be used in the future in our day to day we need to make sure they work for us as well and you know, there's technology that's been built in the past without thinking about women or women's issues. And that's only just starting to happen now. So how do we do that from the beginning now with robots that are going to be involved in our everyday, bring them in. We need women on the teams. We need that, that different viewpoint and perspective. So, yeah. and don't be put off by the coding. There's so many um, online classes. There's so many courses and there's so many people willing to support you as well. And, you don't have to. You don't have to be a superstar to do it. <laughs> yeah, you'll do it. You can yeah, just do it. That that's my yeah. attitude. I, I go if you want to, and you just just step up and do it. That, that's exactly. So, have you? Did you have a mentor um, in your career? Do you believe in having mentors? Yes, I'm. So it's interesting you ask that because what I found is actually I have a group of women that. I go to for different questions, for different support. I, I don't have one person that I ask regularly questions. I, you know, I've been very lucky with my supervisors as well and um, the students in my lab and the postdoc researchers, they've been fantastic. But then also a wider network of um, both people I used to work with and people I've met in different industries. 
all of them can provide a different perspective and different advice. And I found that kind of works really well, just having that kind of a support group as opposed to one individual mentor. But having said that as well, that's something that I've been looking into recently, kind of taking that step from going, okay, so I'm going to be doing um, not just academic research now, but actually setting up just a business. um, It'd be good to start looking for people who are... uh, have experience in the area and can provide advice as well. So, yeah, I, I think it's really necessary to have people that you can question your decisions with and just kind of run things past to say, you know, I think this is a good idea. This sounds like a good idea. I've thought of these things. What's your opinion on that? Just Yeah, to- yeah what, have, what have I missed? Like I'm, yes. we always miss something and it's normally the most obvious. You go, oh, I didn't even think of that, but yeah. yeah. You need someone objective from what you're doing to go, well, have you, X, you know, X, Y, and Z, so. Absolutely. Now your, your PhD, your dissertation, um, once it's um, been approved and everything, what happens to it? Do you publish it or does it get just locked away for no one to read or will you send, oh, let no. me know and it, I can put it on the website? Yes, it's, it, it's available through the university then. So uh, depending, um, usually you have to make some changes um, coming back from examinations, so and then it's available on the website. But I've also um, published a lot of my work as I've gone through. So um, especially um, around user experience and privacy, and so that's available online now uh, as published papers. All right, so maybe we can put that in, in, in as a link for um, the listeners if they want to listen to it. And if anyone's got any questions and they want to contact you, where can they do that? Uh, the best place is through LinkedIn. Okay, find you on LinkedIn. Well, I'm going to have you going to be, there's a link anyway, so they can just connect with you and send you a message there. So, yes. Meg, yes. thank you so much. Like you, um, you're full of energy and um I, I can just see people such as yourself working in this space. We will create a good robot ecosystem of robots that are supposed to do what they're meant to be doing and they're good robots, so to speak. Um, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And um, to the listeners, I'll be joining or hope to join, have you back in two weeks' time on Let's Talk Robotics. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great pleasure.